The rest of us are going to be in Romans chapter 10 this morning, a famous, famous chapter in the Bible when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the gospel. And so if you have a Bible, you can join me and join the rest of us in Romans chapter 10. If you're new to the Bible, you can find a page number in that bulletin that we gave you this morning and also in the Bible that we gave to you, it'll correspond with that. I'm going to ask you to pray with me one more time. Lord, thank you that you are so kind and gracious as to seek after us and to initiate and to draw us to yourself by your grace, even reminded in the song that we just heard. And so we are thankful that you are a gracious God who saves sinners like us. And now as we turn to your word, help us to understand even better the depth and the breadth and the significance of of what Christ has done and give us a burden as a church, not just for our own, but for those who are in need of being reconciled to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you just to listen carefully to these biblical words from the Apostle Paul as an introduction. He said, and I quote, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. They referring to his fellow countrymen and countrywomen, if we say it that way, that his passion, his burning heart's desire is that his fellow countrymen would be saved. That they would be reconciled to God. That they would see themselves as sinners as he did. And that they would be saved by believing in Christ. That was his heartbeat. That was his passion. And it comes through so clearly in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. He longed for them to be saved. This is something that that all Christians can understand. All Christians who are really Christians, truly Christians, not just in Christian in name only. Because we have people that we know and, 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 and we want for them that what what we've experienced ourselves, right? We we want so badly, having experienced salvation by God and, and from God, really, having experienced that to be reconciled to God, to have joy unspeakable, to know with great confidence based upon the work of Christ that we're fit for heaven. It doesn't take very long having experienced that ourselves if we have. We want that. We want that perhaps more than anything else in life. We want that for the people that we know. We want that for people that we don't know. It is a heartbeat for the Apostle Paul. And we, make, we understand why it would be a heartbeat because it ends up being our heartbeat. In fact, I think it's one of the evidences of salvation itself if you have a desire for others to experience what you've experienced. This is good. This is right. In one sense, it couldn't be more right. But there are wrong ways for us to act upon such passions. Two extremes, historical extremes that repeat themselves. On the one side, and I know I pick on this gentleman too often, but he deserves it. In the 19th century, Charles Grandison Finney had a desire for people to be saved, apparently. And so he came to the bizarre conclusion that he, by certain methods, and he, according to human wisdom, could save people. That he himself, by employing certain methodologies, we might today say marketing strategies, he concluded that he could guarantee someone's salvation. He could save anyone. The other extreme would be 
in the case of one of the most famous missionaries known to humanity, next to the Apostle Paul, William Carey. William Carey, an Englishman, one of my heroes of the faith, extra-biblical heroes of the faith, William Carey had this passion like the Apostle Paul, and he wanted the gospel to go to the people of India. And it was burning in his heart like Romans 10.1, and he wanted to go to India, and he wanted to take the gospel to India, but his denomination said, in effect, and I'm not quoting verbatim, if God wants to take the gospel to India, God will do it himself. In other words, he doesn't need you, William Carey. In other words, God doesn't, they were saying, use human means. This extreme is unbiblical. We don't save people and we can't guarantee people salvation. But even though Finney is long gone, probably the most the biggest selling author I know of next to God who wrote the Bible in print says he can lead anyone to Christ. So it's alive and well, spirit of Charles Finney. And we don't see this other extreme very often today either, but things go in cycles and we'll no doubt see it again. It says we don't need to be involved. We don't do anything. So here's where we are as a church. What we want to do is, is to have that kind of passion we want to see people saved. That's what we long for. How do we do that? What, what do we do? What is our responsibility? What does that look like? And Romans 10 is awesome at answering that question. And so this morning we'll look at Romans 10, verses 13 to 17. Romans 10, 13 to 17. And I think we can identify, I know we can identify, six key elements of biblical evangelism. Six key elements of biblical evangelism. You might say this is the anatomy of evangelism. The basics of evangelism. The building blocks of evangelism. The Apostle Paul gives them to us. He gives them to us in reverse order. So I'm not very good at math. I think I probably bribed math teachers to give me better grades so I could go to college. So if you just do me a favor, we're going to go six to one, but I'm probably going to get confused. Just work with me, okay? Uh, so six, five, four, three, two, one. I can count backwards, but I'm going to get confused. I know I am, and that's just how it goes. So let me give you them now in as brief a, a, a wording as possible. Number six, salvation. Number five, calling on. Sounds a little awkward, but we're not talking about God calling here like Romans 8. This is sinners calling on God. Number four, believing. Number three, hearing. Number two, preaching. Number one, sending. Salvation, calling on believing, hearing, preaching, sending. If you have the first three, that's fine because we won't get past the first three. But it's not one, two, and three. It's six, five, and four. If that's not confusing enough for you. Oh, it's hurting already. <laughs> what would those math teachers think now? Just one more introductory comment before we get into these. Interestingly enough, the big picture of Romans 9, 10, and 11, it's not really about evangelism. I mean, Romans 10 is maybe the most famous chapter in the whole Bible about evangelism. It's crucial. It is critical. God in His wisdom gave it to us, but God in His providence gave it to us in a context that's not even big picture addressing the issue of evangelism. It's kind of odd. The big picture is God is explaining how Israel did hear and they did reject. And therefore they are guilty or culpable or responsible. In other words, they can't say, hey, well, the reason we don't believe in Jesus is because nobody ever told us. And he gives us step by step, oh, oh, oh yes, I, I did send messengers and, and you did hear the gospel. Well, we're not going to focus on that this morning. But I want to bring it up because we do want to be true to the, to the author's intent. That's the bigger picture. We'll get to that. But right now, we're going to give us a look at what God gave us in His providence. He gave us a, a detailed anatomy of evangelism. 
as he was addressing a problem issue. And God does that a lot. He's addressing some, some major train wreck of an issue, and he gives us all this great stuff um, in the smaller scale. So just don't want you to think that we're, we're denying the bigger context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. We will get to that. But this great gift to us, because we want to be a church that's committed to biblical evangelism, is a great gift. And by the way, maybe one more thing. I know some of you are newer to all of this. I was just having a conversation just with someone recently. When they heard me say the word uh, evangelical, they immediately thought of a political party. Okay, that's not what we mean. Okay, um, That's major bad baggage. Uh, when I say evangelism, what I mean by that is proclaiming the good news about Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so we're, we're proclaiming the good news. That's evangelism. We're, we're, we're proclaiming the truth about the evangel, the good one. That's what evangelism is. Evangelical actually should be a good word. It's just been hijacked and you know, twisted into meaning all different kinds of things. We actually do want to be evangelicals in the right sense. We're committed to the evangel, whose name is Jesus, and uh, proclaiming the good news about him. So maybe the, the footnote there is be careful what you say <laughs> because things get interpreted in all different kinds of ways. Enough of that. Let's look at the sixth key element of biblical evangelism in reverse order. And it's salvation. It's right there in verse 13. Look there with me if you would. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what I emboldened that last word and underlined twice. We're we're aiming for that. That's what we want. That's what we desire. Romans 10.1, if we could have anything, what are we trying to accomplish? What are we trying to, to see happen? We're trying to see people saved. That's the end game, the desired end game. There's other reasons why we tell about Christ and His greatness. We tell about Christ and His greatness because God says to do that. Great Commission, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, right? We're glorifying Christ by doing that. So the biggest reason is to glorify Christ. And and even when people reject the gospel, as you are telling and speaking about about how great Christ is and, and how great God's love is to satisfy his own justice and how Jesus was uniquely born of a virgin so so he could be the unique Savior and he lived a perfectly righteous life obeying the law on behalf of those who would believe and that he went to the cross and satisfied the just wrath of God that He rose again from the dead, and, and, and if you believe in Him and trust in Him, you will be saved. Whether people believe and are saved or not, you are glorifying Christ because you're telling the truth about Him and you're boasting in Him. But our desire is that as we do that, people will be saved that they will experience reconciliation with God, that they, that they will know what it means to be forgiven, that they will, they will know what it means to have the joy that only a Christian could have. That's what we want. That's what I want us to want as a church, to have that kind of burning passion and desire. You know, there are other priorities. There are other things I want for my kids. There are other things I want for Omaha Bible Church. There are other things I want for my friends And talking to people yesterday who are not Christians, there are other things I would want for them other than salvation. But those are all lesser things. If those other lesser things become the priority, then we're just busy rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, right? There's a Houston, we have a problem. You know, I'm mixing metaphors now, but you get the idea. This is this is it. There is no bigger issue than this issue, and we want it to be our passion. And so he starts there. You might want to make a note, even quoting Jesus here. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn or unless you are converted, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Unless people are converted... He's talking to religious people. Unless you are converted, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Salvation is the biggest deal in the world. And 
God, by disposition, we learn in 1 Timothy, has a desire for people to be saved. We would want to have that kind of desire too. But if that's going to happen, what has to happen before? If people are going to be saved, and we can't guarantee that by following these principles it's going to happen, but if it is going to happen, then we go to 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. If God is going to save them, He's going to use human means. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And so let's look at number 5. Fifth key element of biblical evangelism is calling on. It is calling on. Not God's calling, Romans chapter 8. This is the sinner calling on Christ. Still in verse 13, if you look there, you'll see it. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if that meaning is is at all foggy, he gives us help back in verses 9 and 10. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? 9 said, because if you confess with your mouth, that's synonymous with calling on the name of the Lord. Confessing with your mouth, agreeing with God, that's what confession is, agreeing. Agreeing with God that that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the God-man, that Jesus is the unique one. Let's keep reading. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Verse 10 For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, here's the confession, here's the calling on, one confesses and is saved. So if, by the grace of God, there's going to be salvation, number six, there needs to be, number five, calling on His name. There needs to be confession. There needs to be agreement with God. I I, I believe what you say is true about Jesus. I believe Jesus, and I'm confessing and I'm acknowledging Jesus is more than a mere man. I'm confessing and acknowledging if I'm saying Jesus is Lord, He's more than God even because He needs to be one of us. He needs to be man as well. Historic Orthodox Christianity, He's the God-man, not 50-50, 100-100. Okay, I'm confessing that. That's wrapped up in this idea of confessing Him, calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, it's, it's acknowledging, it's calling on the name of the One who is able to save. Maybe we could put it this way. It's coming to that place where you're not calling on yourself or your religion or your stuff that you do. You're saying... Save me. You do it. And in light of the context of Romans, like Romans 3 through even 8, we can't save ourselves because of the the severity of our sin. So we need someone else to save us and there's only one one thing left to be done. Opening your mouth saying, save me. And remember earlier in the context of Romans 10, we don't have to do these works to do it. We don't try to go to heaven to bring Jesus down. We don't try to go down to the grave to bring Christ up. It's already all been done. The way I put it is, we don't lift a spiritual finger. He even says it's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is to say there's nothing left to be done. You say, Lord, by the grace of God, and their salvation. Acknowledging Him as the one true God, the Savior. Luke chapter 18 gives us a great illustration of this. and We're so familiar with it, maybe too familiar, that we kind of don't appreciate how great it is. If you turn to Luke 18 with me, I think you'll, you'll see it as a great cross-reference. If you're, again, new to the Bible, if you can find Mark where we were earlier, it's one of the four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And if you find Luke 18, it's an awesome, awesome parable that illustrates the significance of calling on Christ. This is like an evangelism how-to seminar. I understand that. And and what we're going to do is try to go a little bit deeper than shallower to understand the anatomy of evangelism because we want to do faithful biblical evangelism that will appropriately guide and direct that kind of passion to see people be saved. And he's giving us that appropriate how-to, if you will. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 says, 
He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That's an interesting commentary, right? That's the religious people. That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10 says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the the religious right-winger is who he is, and the other a tax collector. So you've got a guy in a white hat and a guy in a black hat. Okay, you got the good guy and you got the bad guy. The guy you would think would go to heaven and the guy who would think would go to hell. Keep reading verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, ashamed, all alone, prayed to God this way. Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like, how about this, this tax collector. Dear God, you know, I'm sure he was very humble. Thank you, sounds good so far, that I'm not like other men. (laughs) Like this guy, the loser, right? I'm a bad actor, I know, but let's keep reading. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but, but the tax collector, by way of contrast in verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's really the alone one, but beat his Pressing God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm suggesting to you, he's calling on the name of the Lord. He's got nothing to offer other than guilt. And he says, God, don't give me what I deserve by my good works. I got nothing. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14 says, it's quoting Jesus, I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other man. Hmm. It's pretty sobering. He calls on the name of the Lord and it says he's justified. (laughs) He's declared righteous on the spot. And don't read in between the lines after he hurried up and did all kinds of religious things. That's clearly not the intent. He's calling on the name of the Lord because he knows the Lord is the one who's got to give him what he needs. The righteousness that brings justification. It's such a great, great illustration. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper as we go back to Romans 10.13. If you go back to Romans 10.13, let's not be done yet. Let's notice the inclusivity of it. We're still talking about calling on the name of the Lord. Still point number five, which feels like point number two, which is confusing. Look at verse 13 and look at the inclusivity. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is very, very inclusive. If you're saying, man, I'm just praying for the day that Omaha Bible Church becomes more inclusive. There it is. Answered prayer. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't get any broader than that. It's very, very inclusive. And the context helps us in verse 12 to even know what he's getting at. Verse 12 said, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches. That's what we're talking about, right? Bestowing His riches, His righteousness, on all who call on Him. This is great to see the broadness of this. Think about it in in these terms, this calling on the name of the Lord. We need this, by the way, in our evangelism mindset. Everyone who calls on His name will be saved. Because sometimes we have a problem with, okay, we've got person A who, you know, is generally a good person, you know, we kind of sort of think, and they go to church, and and they believe in Christ, and so it makes sense that they're saved. And then over here, we've got this person who's on death row, and they call on the name of the Lord, and that bugs us, and we have a problem with that. Well, we need Romans 10. We need the inclusivity of Romans chapter 10, because how about this? It is not about the person. It's not about the person. It's about Christ, right? Look look again at verse 12. At the end there, 
The reason there's no distinction at the beginning of verse 12 is because at the end, bestowing his riches on all who believe. See, it's not about the person's credibility or lack thereof. It is about his riches. And his riches end up being the great equalizer. We need to know this. We need to know this as we're going through, if this is evangelism training. It is about calling on Christ. It is about calling on the name of the Lord. And then you get His riches. Then let's see something about the exclusivity. Still talking about number five. Calling on the name of the Lord has to happen if people are going to be saved. Again, verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. It doesn't say for everyone they'll be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the Bible doesn't teach universalism. Unless you want it to teach universal depravity, it does teach that. Universalism, no, there, there is a Revelation 20. Um, it talks about hell. It lasts for a long time. It is true. It's not just a rumor. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Not because it's more important, maybe because we would have such a hard time swallowing it otherwise. There is an exclusivity here. Salvation is for those who call on the name of the Lord. They don't call on anything else or anyone else. And we should see this. There's even something else we should see before we move on. And there's something about the responsibility here. It's also essential to evangelism. Do notice, it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That, that's, that's responsibility. And we're going to talk more about this in just a little bit. But make no mistake about it. The Bible doesn't say, well, well, you know, Jesus died and then everybody is saved. Or Jesus died and then all the elect are saved, or however you want to put it. And nobody does anything. There's no human response. Calling on the name of the Lord. And maybe just one more thing. And by the way, first hour they voted. I said, you guys want to go wide or deep? And they said, deep. So they voted for you. Um, and I wasn't going to listen anyway. We were going to go more deep than, than broad. But one more thing about this before we move on. And that is, let's make sure we remember Romans 10, 13. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And let's make sure we understand that there also is a Matthew 7. We won't take the time to turn there right now. Matthew 7 informs us in verses 21 to 23, you could just jot it down, that it is possible to say the words and have it not be real. Because Jesus said, and I quote, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And then he says, depart from me. I never knew you. It is possible to make a false profession. Both are true. So read Romans 7 with Romans 10. And here's what you'll conclude. That when it comes to our evangelistic methods, let's not go down the road of getting people to, okay, repeat after me. Like it's a mantra that they can merely repeat and that will seal the deal. That looks a lot like Charles Grandison Finney, by the way. Who, by the way, I don't think I told you this, at the end of his life, and I'm not quoting him verbatim, but this is the gist of it, concluded that all of his converts were worthless converts. I'm so glad he lived long enough to admit that. We don't want to have that kind of ministry. So what we're not trying to do is saying, all right, here's the script, just say these words, man, you're in. you got to go to Matthew 7 for that one. What we would want to say, if you truly call on the name of the Lord. The Bible promises you will be saved. So let's remember that in our 
strategies and our thinking. I love it that we're doing this. This is everyday life. This, this is me yesterday. Relying upon this kind of stuff. You know, building a, if you will, theology of evangelism that is going to then guide and direct your methodology of evangelism. Because too many times we have a certain theology that leads to a bad methodology. Or sometimes we have a good theology and we forget about it and we have a bad methodology. And so I love it that this can be a good time for us to, to be a better equipped. I'm really, really thankful. Number four, six, five, four. If we're going to see people saved by God's grace, only He can do that, but the means He's going to use, according to Romans 10, He's going to have the number five be calling on the name of the Lord and number four be believing. It's a fourth key element of biblical evangelism and that is believing. And we see it in verse 14. But how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? So we see it's right there. Belief. And this is so hard to distinguish between calling on that it's like it's two sides of the same coin. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to to draw a distinction between calling on and believing. But here seems to be the idea. The idea seems to be that you're never going to say, Lord, save me! Unless you believe that He is able Unless you believe what is true about him. If he's spiritually weak, if he's still dead, uh, if he's not truly a human being so he can be your representative, if he's not truly God who can be powerful enough then to have this be for all who would ever believe, and the list could go on, you would never say, save me, because you would conclude he's not capable. And so that seems to be the idea in mind I would think, and others do as well. Now remember too, when it says believe, remember this, this is really important. Remember in the Bible, faith and belief are the same thing. It's going to come from the same Greek word. So they're the same idea. It's all over the place, in Romans especially. The way to, to appropriate Christ's death is to believe in Him. It means trust. So faith, belief, trust, dependence. And I just repeat that over and over again, especially in our culture. Because here's how faith works in our our culture. Faith or belief is that which is untrustworthy. Right? Things that are not factual. Things that have no credibility, we say, have faith, believe, Even though it's ridiculous and it's not true and it's not trustworthy, make my mind hurt. Okay? Just have faith. As if to say, faith in faith. Even though we know it's not true, just have faith. In the Bible, faith is belief, is trust. So what we're talking about is trusting the credibility of Christ. Trusting the power of Christ. Trusting the... the, Willingness of Christ. That He does save sinners. That He did come to give His life as a ransom for many. So we're talking about something totally different than our culture means. Faith is not religious preference. Faith is trusting in Christ. And so in our mind, when we're thinking this through, we've got to remember, if we want to see people saved, which we do, we want to see them calling on the name of the Lord, we want to see them believing in the One who is worthy of calling upon. It's not a perfect analogy, but if I need help, I need rescuing, I'm drowning. I don't call out to a mouse to pull me out. Okay? I don't do that. I don't, pull, I don't call out to an infant to pull me out. I call out to someone who is strong enough and available and there or whatever. It's just an analogy, but that's the idea. 
You're going to call out and ask for him to save you because he's able. You believe that he's able because you know the truth about him. And so there's a need to believe in Christ. People must believe in Christ. They must trust in him. If you go back and read Romans 1, this starts in Romans 1, Romans 1.16. And then it really is emphasized again in Romans 3. And then in Romans 4, I've never seen faith and belief so much on a single page in my whole life as Romans 4. And then Romans 5, and then Romans 6, and then Romans 7, and then Romans 8. Because we apply what Christ has done by believing in Him, depending upon Him. If anybody's going to be saved, it's not by osmosis. It's not by the sheer fact that they're a member of the human race. They're calling on Him, and they're calling on Him in whom they trust, in whom they believe, because He's qualified. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying you have to explain this to everyone every time you do evangelism. This is helping us to understand evangelism so that we can do it because we know what's going on, and we know what's necessary. I also want to point out, as we're building this methodology based upon theology, that this is essential. This is mandatory that people believe. And you might be thinking, that's pretty dumb. Why do you tell us that? You know, we see it right here in the passage. And I'm telling you that because here's a, here's a bad tendency. The bad tendency is that we read Romans 8 and Romans 9. And the emphasis is on God and God alone does this and we're so glad that He does it. That we come to the extreme of thinking He never uses human means in the process. We read and act and function sometimes as if Romans 8 and 9 are not right next to Romans 10. I mean, look at Romans 8 with me, if you would. This is a mandate. This is a necessity. This is essential. People must believe. And some of you are all so fired up about Romans 8 because you're so tired of man-centered drivel. That's not the gospel. You're going to miss Romans 10. So let's not do that. But remember Romans 8, Romans 8, 29, for those whom He, God, foreknew, He, God, also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be, that is, God the Son, firstborn among many brothers, verse 30, and those whom He, God, predestined, He also, that is, He, God, also called, and those whom He, God, called, He also, He justified, and those whom He, God, justified, He also glorified. God, 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 God. And it's so refreshing against the backdrop of man-centeredness. And you go, oh, thank you for this awesome, awesome fresh drink of water. And then we're so excited and we move into Romans 9. God and His sovereign grace. And it is up to God to do whatever it is He wants to do. It is so bold and strong. We lost people in Romans 9 because it's so strong. But what we want to make sure we don't do is apparently you guys like Romans 9. <laughs> You're still here. I love Romans 9. I love Romans 8. But we've got to remember Romans 10. Belief is necessary. God uses faith to appropriate or apply the work of His Son. It is vital. You see, we can, have, we can have two different kinds of dead churches. We can be a Charles Finney dead church and have lots of people. Okay? Man, they were just, we would be packed out church marketing to the core. We're a dead church because we think we can convert people and we should hear that voice from the grave. He actually wrote it down you're building a dead church because the converts are worthless. But we can have another kind of dead church. Historically, it's called hyper-Calvinism where we never make it past Romans 8 and 9 and we forget 
to preach the gospel and call people to believe. And I don't want to pastor either kind of dead church. God is sovereign. God alone saves. God uses human means to proclaim the gospel that does in fact call people to believe. Did you know that that believing in the Bible is a command? We'll end on this note. But I do want you to see it in a couple of different passages. We really need it because we've been in Romans 8 and 9. Belief in the Bible is a command. We see a hint of it uh, in, in Romans chapter 10 verse 16. It says in verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. The gospel is something to be obeyed? Back in Romans 1.5, it talks about the obedience of faith. And now I would like you to turn to Acts 16. Acts is right before Romans. And in Acts 16, we could go to Acts 17 as well. Someone reminded me of that this morning. And I realize we're looking at trees now and we're kind of, we've kind of lost sight of the forest. But the big picture is clear enough. We want to see people saved. In order to be saved, you have to call on the name of the Lord. In order to call on the name of the Lord, you have to trust Him. You have to believe in Him. And that's what we're focusing on now. And we're making sure, I'm trying to do my best to, see, to show you that, that we're not going to try to save people ourselves, but God is going to use us in the process of proclamation. And faith or believing is a command, and we do call people to believe. Acts 16, verse 31 says... Believe in the Lord Jesus, there's the command, and you will be saved. Now this gets pretty deep. So, you ready? Hold my hand, we're going to jump in the deep end of the pool for a little bit. Got the floaties on your arms if you need them. Um, Got the orangey life jacket if you need it. Some of you need that, never mind. (laughs) When we do biblical evangelism, we call people to repentance, or we call people to faith. Let me stick with that word. The Apostle Paul did. So we do that. We say, believe in the Lord Jesus. Obviously, having explained who He is, or obviously they're going to believe in some God of their imagination, or whatever it is, but believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But we do call people to believe in Christ. We most certainly do. And if we don't, we're going to be like that non-sending denomination of William Carey's. If God wants to take the gospel to India, He'll do it Himself. They also would have had a huge problem with William Carey calling people to believe in Christ but it's biblical. I had a very unsettling and disturbing meeting with a man a number of years ago who was at Omaha Bible Church for a long time. He was very, very upset because there was a guest speaker. I don't know why he wasn't upset with me. I did the same thing, but anyway. Guest speaker who called people to believe in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, in essence. And he was so upset because that's works. That's a denial of Romans 9. That's a denial of sovereign grace. And so we had a lengthy conversation. I know I won't get it just right. He has it just right because he recorded the conversation, but I didn't. And I said, well, what about Acts 16? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he said, it doesn't say you believe. And so it's not a command. Now, I'm not very smart. But I said, well, actually, it's an aorist imperative second person singular, pistuo. (laughs) You believe. It most certainly is. The translators could put the word you in there or not put the word in the, the you in there, but, but it absolutely is you believe. And it's so troubling. We have to remember God is sovereign in His grace, Romans 9, but we have to remember Romans 10. 
We have to, have to, have to, have to, or we will be a dead church one way or the other way. And so I'll make it my mission in life pastorally to, to battle, battle, battle myself and you and anyone else to say both are true. God uses means to save people by His sovereign grace. And history is littered with this or that. Or this. But too many times not this because we go one direction or the other. And I, I know, I know some of you are so excited about Romans 8 and 9. And you should be. But let that fuel your evangelism. Let that be what causes you not to be a manipulator, not a salesman who closes the deal. You proclaim Christ. You call people to believe, but you leave the results up to God. That's biblical evangelism. That's what it is. That's ABCs. That's what I pray for and long for at OBC and other places. Now let's go into the 15-foot just for a few minutes. We've been in the 10-foot maybe. This man I was meeting with was doing something admirable. Okay, just was biblically not informed enough. Was lopsided. Here's how his thinking was. The Bible teaches total depravity. Not that people are as bad as they could be, but at their very core, people are sinful. He was thinking Ephesians 2, New Testament. 1, 2, and 3, spiritually dead. He was thinking, that doesn't make any sense. We're going to call spiritually dead people to believe? They can't in and of themselves. He was right. He was thinking Romans 3. No one does good, no, not one. There is none righteous. And believing in Christ is good. Nobody does that. Apart from God's sovereign intervention. He was so right in his thinking. And by the way, when I do evangelism, I'm thinking about that stuff. I'm proclaiming the truth about Christ. I'm knowing in my mind that they, in and of themselves, are spiritually dead. I'll, I'll evangelize anyone with a heartbeat, but I know that they don't have a spiritual heartbeat because of Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3. But I call them to believe anyway. And you're going, what? Some of you aren't because you know this because you do this. Acts 17, God calls everyone everywhere. To repent. You say, how does this work practically? Help me understand even more. I'm glad you asked me to because I'm going to do that. Thanks. You see, everyone is responsible to believe. Everybody's responsible because God says believe. Acts 17, for example. Or through the Apostle Paul in Acts 16. There's nothing unfair about that. By the way, everyone is obligated to do whatever God says. Because He's God. So in the garden, don't eat from that tree. Do anything else. Just don't eat from that tree. In other words, acknowledge me as God. Do what I say. That's how it's always been. And we could never say, that's not fair that God calls, calls us to do what He says. See, it's even not fair even if we don't have the ability to do what He says. Because what we have done to ourselves... In the fall. Get your mind around that. God calls everyone to believe His truth about His Son. No one can, apart from God granting life, apart from God opening eyes. John chapter 3. The Spirit goes where He wants to. Maybe I can put it this way in a good, profound, simple theological statement. Responsibility does not equal ability. You need to know that in your evangelism. You have to conclude that in light of Romans 1, 2, and 3. And then Romans 10. They're not able. They're not capable. Read Ephesians 2. But we call people to believe anyway. Knowing that if God is going to save, point number 6... He, they, they do have to call on His name. They have to believe. And oh, Philippians 1.27 says faith is granted as a gift. Ephesians 
Or Lydia, God opening her heart to respond. God did that. Ability or responsibility does not equal ability. If you can't get that in your mind and remember it, here's a caricature. A theologian by the name of John Gershner. Should I do it? <laughs> John Gershner's in heaven now. and John Gershner, I don't know if it was because he smoked like 40 packs a day or what. I don't know. But a uh, pretty famous theologian from a generation ago. And I think the statement, I think he's the one that kind of codified the statement. But he, he would say, Responsibility does not equal ability. You're going to remember now, aren't you? <laughs> you might have bad dreams tonight, but uh, by the grace of God, you might remember it. So we call everyone everywhere to believe the gospel. And no one will be saved apart from believing the gospel. But we know that God has to grant faith. He has to do it. And so we pray toward that end. We pray toward that end. So let's keep, let's have good theology to begin with, which Romans gives us. And by the way, that's why Romans 10 isn't the first chapter in the book. We've, we've got good theology. We understand who God is. We understand who we are. We understand that it's only in Christ. And we understand now. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. So we preach the word of Christ. We preach the word of Christ. We preach the word of Christ. And if God is going to grant faith, it is through those means. And that's what we do. And it's awesome. It's so awesome. I was volunteering yesterday at the boat show helping the Omaha Marines sell boats because they're a sponsor for Jonathan and wakeboarding. Man, I was playing salesman. That's what I don't do in evangelism. Lest I'm Charles Finney. But I didn't just stand there and say nothing to anyone. You can't do that in evangelism. Analogy doesn't work. Lord, thank you so much for this morning and thank you for giving us an opportunity to think about this stuff as a church. And Lord, we, we want our understanding of the gospel that it's only by grace and it's not earned, it's not merited. To be intact when we do evangelism. And we do want you to grant people saving faith as you've granted to so many of us. So help us to be clear about Christ and help us to be clear about what He's done and help us to be bold even in our proclamation, calling people to believe in Him. So that in the end, we could be like those Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians, knowing that their salvation did not rest upon the wisdom of men. In Jesus' name, amen.